the president himself seems to prefer to play footsie with the Russians rather than actually confront them for the enemy they are. It is the week of July 27th, and welcome to episode 35 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have Jamil Jaffer, NSI founder and executive director, and also the former chief counsel and senior advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Lauren Dealey Mahler, NSI Visiting Fellow and former Director of Legislative Affairs at the National Security Council and founder and president of Dealey Mahler Strategies. Andrew Boreen, NSI Senior Fellow and former Associate Deputy General Counsel of the Department of Defense. And myself, Lester Munson, a Senior Fellow at NSI and the former Staff Director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. This week, we're going to talk about a couple of complicated dilemmas for U.S. foreign policy. Uh, the first one has to do with energy issues. Super hot right now. Congress and the administration are pursuing sanctions against Nord Stream 2, a proposed pipeline that would facilitate Russian liquefied natural gas shipments to Germany. Germany and Denmark, among other Western European nations, are in favor of the pipeline. The U.S. in both the administration and Congress is opposed. Jamil, how should we be balancing our relationship between these important NATO allies with our desire to isolate Russia, particularly in this case? Well, I don't think it's a close call. You know, the U.S. has been debating these issues for the better part of a decade since the Bush administration. We've been talking about the need to have an alternate pipeline and alternate sources for Russian natural gas. Obviously, the Europeans today are dependent on the Russians for natural gas as well as heating oil. And the U.S. has to do more in this space. We can't simply argue against a pipeline without offering an alternative. We had an alternative back in the past, the Nabucco pipeline. We've talked about building terminals and shipping liquefied natural gas, which we have a huge reserves of here in the United States due to shale fracking over the ocean. And yet we have not closed any of those deals. Instead, to the contrary, we permitted, allowed our allies to go along with the Russians in building Nord Stream 2 pipeline. It's now ready to go operational here in the near future. That's a huge problem, and it's going to make our allies in Europe more dependent, not less on the Russians. That's a problem, and you know we have simply failed in that regard. So, Lauren, the administration is imposing sanctions not only on the pipeline itself, but it looks like European companies that are involved in the construction of the pipeline. This has angered our European allies, particularly Germany, but others as well. How would a Biden administration handle this issue differently than the Trump administration? Well, I think it's pretty safe to say that when... Uh wanting your allies to actually do something that benefits you and benefits them that you generally don't walk around spending years building up a track record of, of punching them in the face every chance you get. I think Jamil made an interesting point where he commented that we had allowed our allies to do something. And I think you don't allow your allies to do things. I think you encourage your allies to work with you by being a good ally. And I think that's something that the Trump administration has not prioritized across a whole slew of issues. This is just the latest and trying to convince somebody that they should not work with Russia, that perhaps they should work with you and maybe come and buy your natural gas instead. The best way to do that is probably not to constantly keep hitting them with sanctions and threats of sanctions and piling up like that. So I think it lends into the broader issue that I think it's pretty safe to say that a Biden administration would prioritize our allies and rebuilding and re-strengthening the alliances that the United States has enjoyed for decades. Andrew, can you talk about the same topic, how you think a potential Biden administration would handle this differently? And let's throw in there, you know, another complicating factor, which is China's view of European energy politics. How would Joe Biden kind of factor in 
China's goals and aspirations here into this question? I'll start quickly. Just say, obviously, I can't speak for Vice President Biden or his policy team, but certainly we've read more than a little bit in outlets like Foreign Affairs and you know senior people that uh, would likely be in the defense infrastructure and State Department infrastructure for a Biden administration. And I think what you can take from that is really two words: allies matter. Uh, it's a recurring theme. It keeps coming out from the mouths of those that are on the campaign officially. You can also look at uh, Vice President Biden's January piece in Foreign Affairs about why America must lead again. In there, if you read it, uh, talk a great deal about the importance of multilateral stakeholders, on the importance of building coalitions to lead. And I'm going to use capital L lead in the style of a President Reagan. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall type speeches, rallying the European allies against and perhaps uh, more clearly articulating what the actual foreign threats are. Uh, from actors like Russia and China. And yes, I, I am getting to your China question, but it right now starts with Russia and it starts with this pipeline. The other thing I think a Biden administration would be doing substantially differently than the last three and a half years of a Trump administration is taking a long-term view. I think, you know, Lauren and Jamil both mentioned it, that this is almost a crisis now in trying to block the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. This thing's been underway for years. It's already been under construction. As far back as October, Denmark pulled out of their resistance to enforcing sanctions on the construction of the pipeline. You know, Russia, not known known for its reliability in statements about international affairs, not known for its reliability in support for Ukraine or a free Ukraine or a Ukraine that's supplied with their gas, says they're going to do a carve out. I give 0% credibility to assertions by Putin's government that he would take care of our allies in Ukraine. China undoubtedly watches this in reference to what just happened with Huawei infrastructure in telecoms, right? The administration came in, announced they were going to give a lot of sanctions, announced a lot of heavy handed, too late in the game type bluster. And now we're looking at a lot of 5G infrastructure from Huawei throughout Europe with some minor holdouts in places like UK. So there is really a rival powers struggle, not just in Europe, but around the globe between the United States and at times a combined axis of China Communist Party rule under Xi and Putin's crony uh, former uh, KGB government. And so I think a Biden administration would be likely to assert what the adversaries are, take a long-term view, and really seek to build an alliance with willing partners rather than come in late in the game with bluster and sanctions. So Jamil, what's your take on that criticism? Has this administration managed the great power rivalries with China and Russia well? And is this last gasp of effort on Nord Stream 2 too little too late? Well, look, I'm not going to laud this administration's work on Russia. It's been a complete and abject failure, in part because the president himself seems to prefer to play footsie with the Russians rather than actually confront them for the enemy they are. On the other hand, on China, this president has been very forward-leaning. Uh, he's initiated a significant trade dispute with China over their failed efforts or, or continuing efforts, I should say, not even failed, actually very successful efforts to steal intellectual property from the United States, uh, to engage in spying here and the like. And I'm really glad to hear Andrew and Lauren both note that we're going to finally back our allies the way we didn't do in the Obama administration, the way we failed to do repeatedly with respect to our allies across the globe. And I'm really glad finally that Andrew's uh, supportive of a Biden administration that would not lead from behind, but actually lead from the front. So if that's in fact how Joe Biden's going to govern, that's terrific. Unfortunately, we've had eight years of experience with Joe Biden and Barack Obama. But that's not what they did. So the two-finger response here is, one, Andrew Marine has never suggested that America lead from behind. That's not where this American comes down as a former Marine. I will say this, however, the world is different today than it was at the end of the Obama-Biden administration. So in the last three and a half years, we've seen the rise of Xi. We've seen the reestablishment of Putin as the eternal leader of a Russian KGB crony government. And so I think Joe Biden will come in and bring a team of professionals to address the world as it is. I think you're going to hear a lot less about a liberal international order 
and the end of Pax Americana. And you're going to hear a lot more about the free world and leadership of the free world and reestablishing uh, the United States as a leader, not as a bully. Jamil, what about that? Is this administration losing Germany for us because of its ham handedness? Look, again, I'm not going to embrace what this administration has done or the way it's treated our allies. I just want to note that for all the happiness about uh, the Obama administration when it came into office, uh, over its eight years in office, it isolated our allies, made our enemies unafraid of us. And let's be honest, Joe Biden was at the heart of that presidency uh, when it came to foreign policy. So look, if Joe Biden's going to be different now because the world's different, that's great. I love that. I want Joe Biden uh, to look like Ronald Reagan. So if Joe Biden's going to look like Ronald Reagan, terrific. But that is not the history we had over the eight years that he was the vice president. All right, Lauren, Andrew, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was in Denmark last week. He was talking to the foreign minister there. He was also talking to the foreign minister of Greenland, the foreign minister of the Faroe Islands. We've got a lot at stake in our relationships with Northern Europeans. It's more than just Nord Stream 2. What else is at stake here and how is this administration handling it? Predominantly, the Arctic matters, right? Transit across the Arctic, access to the Arctic. And we do need to take into account that we're trying to establish normal relations in places like Greenland. You know, just announced a new consulate in Greenland. Uh, Secretary Pompeo was doing that. And in the local news, there it came again when President Donald Trump made tweets and asserted that he was going to buy Greenland and kind of a shoot from the hip Twitter foreign policy actually alienates people who we need to be allied with the United States. So I think the past couple of years of shoot from the hip, 140 character, 280 character foreign policy needs to be overcome. Trust needs to be rebuilt. But frankly, if you think about, again, that contest between Russia, who's well established uh, in the Arctic with access and China, who's actively trying to build undersea technologies and telecommunications technologies to leverage that geographical access point, we really need to be a little more concerted in our efforts to build allies in Greenland, Denmark, and the Nordics. Lauren, we can tell where Andrew's heart lies because he's wearing a t-shirt with a Swedish flag uh, for this podcast, which I admire him for. There's a lot of sympathy with at least some of the folks on this podcast for Arctic issues. We've got ethnic roots there, what have you. What's your take on how relevant the Arctic is, how this administration has handled it, this seemingly crazy proposal from a year or two ago to buy Greenland from Denmark, which, you know, I got to admit, I don't think is that crazy. We bought Alaska once. We bought the Louisiana Purchase. Those both turned out pretty well. What's your assessment of this administration? You know, the world is changing. There are powers are rising. Some are falling. We've got a new great power competition going on, certainly with China and possibly with Russia. Shouldn't we be approaching some of these things a little bit differently? What's your take on U.S.-European relations right now? I think in general, there are a lot of things that both Jamil and Andrew said that I think resonate and that matter if we can dig through some of the other parts. But I think that uh, what we're seeing now is exactly as you outlined, there's a lot of issues that are all sort of coming to a head and moving as there always are in foreign policies and there always are around the world. But we seem to be in a slow motion seismic shift in how the world is structured right now. And our relations vis-a-vis our European allies are not great, but it doesn't seem to be bothering the people that it should be bothering. It doesn't seem to be bothering the people who are responsible for making the kinds of decisions and establishing the kind of policies to strengthen those allies. And I think the challenge you have is that you've got Pompeo and you've got others who are going out and they're doing things like the world is normal and they're opening consulates and they're meeting with leaders and then nothing is coming from it because you take two steps forward and you look like, oh, we're going to have, you know, diplomatic relations as if the world was in a place that it was 
four years ago. And then you've got the president swinging in out of the rafters and tweeting out something that blows everything up. So you take two steps forward and one step back. And when you have so many issues that required such a nuanced touch and that require such a, a delicate diplomatic effort as they always have, you can't run that with an administration that functions this way. You can't be delicate. You can't be tactful. You can't be nuanced. You can't be diplomatic the way that you just simply have to be to function in the world. And America's leadership has come from being able to navigate those terrains. And right now, it's just not something we can do. Let me push you, Lauren and Andrew, a little bit on your answer, because, you know, while I am largely sympathetic to the sentiments you've been expressing, let's put a little more to the test. Would a Biden administration be just more tactful, diplomatic, and careful and nuanced in the way it conducts policy? Or does it have a different strategic outlook, the incredibly important relationship we have with Europe and the way we would handle Russia and China? Is it just a matter of the mode or is it the underlying issues where there's a difference? I think one of the biggest differences comes from the fact that that relationship would suddenly matter more. We would go back to actually caring about what that relationship really looks like, not just what it looks like in a specific moment in time to serve a specific end. And again, I caveat all this, I should have said this earlier, I speak in no way for the Biden campaign whatsoever. But knowing what the history of U.S. foreign policy has been and how it has changed in different ways as the world around us has also changed, I think that the strategic difference is that those kinds of things matter in the long term. The big picture relationship, the strategic relationship that we have with our European allies and with other countries, competing powers around the world actually matter to the conduct of our business, not not just to the specific business conduct of the day. Andrew, what do you think? I'm going to echo Lauren's point and just take a slightly different spin that um, first, I'm just going to thank National Security Institute for doing this podcast and having uh, discussions on these issues that frequently have no constituency. If you look historically across any administration, the National Security Enterprise institutions like the State Department and CIA and the Pentagon typically don't have a vastly heard constituency discussing these policy issues and how they change over time. You know, I would just bring it back to uh, Lauren's point that, you know, historically, Historically, foreign policy has a, a really significant set of stakeholders who spend decades in the halls of American government. They are led by political appointees that come from an administration. And I think that you kind of see the past three and a half, four years of what has happened toward running a massive, and I'll use the bureaucratic, not in a negative sense, but a massive bureaucratic enterprise to administer U.S. foreign policy, again, with kind of a shoot from the hip cult of personality and even the confusion of appointing Mnuchin to head certain foreign policy initiatives rather than the Secretary of state can be confusing to our allies. And so I think that what we'll see and what is important is reestablishing longstanding important alliances, reestablishing the EU-US framework as it pertains to the Arctic, uh, reestablishing an alliance with NATO, not only to offset Russia, but also uh, an increasingly expansive China. So Lauren, I think, said it best when she made reference to the decades of foreign policy flexing to changing times. But throughout that, there is a stable core of bureaucrats, administrators, and middle management that really is a little confused, I think, in the past three years, if you look at disparities between what happens at the podium in the White House and how things are getting executed on the ground and on what timelines. Jamil, something happened in the House last week that may be the beginning of kind of a reckoning for our party where some members of the Republican caucus were critical of one member of Republican leadership for not being supportive enough of the president. She, the person who's being criticized, clearly takes more of a Reaganite or Cheney-esque approach to foreign policy. And the people who are criticizing her are much more Trumpian. So in a future world, where does our party without President Trump at the helm end up? Do we go back? 
back to kind of a Reagan era peace through strength approach? Or are we going to be a limited, modified, more abrupt version of Obama Biden, which is where I, I kind of think we are now? What's your assessment? Well, look, I mean, one can only hope that we go back to a foreign policy and a national security policy in the Republican Party of America leading the world rather than America leading from behind as the current president and the prior uh, president and his vice president would have had it uh, back in the day. Um, and again, I'm hopeful to see a Joe Biden, uh, if he's elected president, uh, that will lead from the front. Like I say, he didn't do it for eight years uh, in office, and it hasn't happened for the last four years in the Trump administration. So about the Republican Party in particular, I do worry that the forces that would have us retreat home, as the Democrats would do, are in ascendance in the Republican Party. And I think that's a mistake. I think that focusing here at home and not focusing abroad ensures that we will have our enemies come to our shores instead of us going to theirs. And that's a problem. We've seen the failure of taking advantage of the peace dividend during the Clinton administration. We've seen the uh, mistake of trying to end all endless wars, as both uh, President Obama and President Trump would have had us do. And we run the risk of doing that again if the president is reelected or if the Republican Party remains in the hands of the Trump faction. And it is just that, a faction. So I support Liz Cheney. I think Liz Cheney is exactly right. I think she was critical of the president for the right reasons. I think her foreign policy is the right one for this country. And frankly, I'm looking forward to seeing her stay in leadership in the House and do more going forward as I'm with other key leaders in the House. And yes, that part of the Republican Party is on the downswing right now. And I hope to see a comeback of it. All right. We're going to switch topics a little bit here and talk about Francophone Africa for a little bit, which we don't do enough of on this podcast. So the former president of Cote d'Ivoire, Laurent Bagbo, who was under indictment for crimes against humanity at the International Criminal Court in The Hague, was found not guilty a few months ago. And now his political party back in Cote d'Ivoire is urging him to return to the country and stand for president to be their party's candidate for the highest office in the land again. So this brings up a whole host of issues, not just about the management of a fairly important country in West Africa, but also about what we think of multilateral treaties and international law enforcement. Lauren, what's your assessment of the U.S. interest in this case? Do we have a dog in this fight? I think we do have an interest. We do have a dog. I don't know if it's necessarily one of the obvious dogs that's standing there in the ring right now, but I think that the U.S. has an interest in seeing democracy develop around the world, period. Wherever it is, however it happens, and strengthening it through its evolution, country by country. That is a fact. I don't know if the current administration would so strongly support that as I know the four of us here do. But I think that seeing the way that the elections play out this coming fall is going to be a big determinant in how strong the democratic process and infrastructure is in the country. I'm hearing myself say those words and I realize I could be talking about us just as much. But in this case, really talking about Coach Barra, like looking at whether or not Bagbo comes back and runs, looking at who else runs, looking at the way that plays out and specifically what happens after the election when there are results. Are we going to see a return to contested violence around the results. I think that's going to be very telling for that country. And it's always in the U.S. interest to promote the development and strengthening of democracy. So let me challenge you a little bit. What's promoting democracy for Cote d'Ivoire? Is it allowing the Ivorians themselves to decide who should be their president with a wide range of candidates? Or should the international community intervene, restrict Bagbo from going back and say, you know what, we want democracy for you, but it doesn't include this guy? What's a more democratic approach at the end of the day? I think at the end of the day, a more democratic approach is letting the country make its choice, but doing so and protecting the structures within and the processes within 
which they do make that choice. It's protecting the infrastructure and the process of democracy. I think, yep, there's a place for us to say, yeah, you should choose whoever you want, but don't pick that guy. But more from the outside looking in, not going into the inside and saying, here are the folks that we think you should get to choose from. Here's what we think is an acceptable slate of candidates. Now you go do democracy and pick one. I don't think that's our role. Jamil, let's talk about the ICC for a second. The Trump administration is not only not a signatory to the ICC, by the way, the treaty, if it was given to the Senate, would never be ratified. But the administration is not only not a signatory to the ICC, but the Trump administration is now sanctioning ICC officials for pursuing an investigation against U.S. forces in Afghanistan. So given our open hostility to the ICC, how should the administration be thinking of this Cote d'Ivoire matter? Well, look, I mean, the ICC is a complete train wreck. It has been from day one. President Clinton was wrong to sign the ICC, the Rome Treaty that established the ICC. President Bush wisely made clear that the U.S. would not ratify the Rome Treaty. And that's been the right position. And it's proven out with the ICC uh, seeking to outrageously prosecute American soldiers in Afghanistan. The president and Secretary Pompeo have been right to criticize the ICC for these completely lawless efforts. Um, and it just goes to show. I mean, the ICC can't convict actual criminals um, and instead wants to put uh, American soldiers doing their job uh, in the aftermath of 9-11 uh, on trial. So uh, the ICC is a joke. We should get rid of it. We were right to not join it. We're right to not cooperate. And we should let it die a timely death. Andrew, what's your assessment of the administration's approach to the ICC? And would a President Biden handle things differently? And if so, how? The recurring theme with all of the Trump administration policies is that it's bluster and it's attack from the front and it's end it. And, you know, it's the, everything's apocalyptic and there are no alternative visions. There's no effort to bend the arc of world events to the United States advantage artfully. And let's be honest, there is an art to bending the arc of world events to the United States advantage. And it doesn't matter political party one way or the other. Many American presidents have been very effective at leading through influence rather than leading through threats, leading through assertions. It's funny you mentioned Bolton earlier in the conversation, but blow up the top floors of the United Nations, right? I mean, these international organizations are absolutely flawed. You cannot bring 185 plus disparate entities together on efforts of importance to all fundamental human rights and expect to see a smooth, easy path to making international accords, right? And seeing, you know, what trials that would be deemed fair by all parties. Uh, you know, and, and I'll just tell you for my part, you know, I think it's disappointing across the board. This is one that I think Jamil and I would agree on. We are the United States. We invented the law of armed conflict and human rights and modern warfare. Abraham Lincoln started it. The Red Cross promoted it. And we should be decimating our rivals in the space of leveraging the rule of law to enforce uh, crimes against humanity and to enforce uh, war crimes. And so I think that the the more complex answer that's not just black or white or binary is how do we how do we shape and redirect these institutions back to their original intent? Right. The original intent of this uh, network of things like the International Criminal Court and the United Nations and the Bretton Woods monetary system was that the United States could be in a leadership position of the free world uh, and, you know, uh, promote. Let's if you don't like the word liberal world order, but to promote uh, enlightenment thought and pr protect the fundamental human rights of all people all over the world. And I think ICC can be a piece of that. I think it's got some flaws. Undoubtedly, I don't think you're going to see a whole lot of national security establishment lawyers saying that ICC works perfectly for the United States when it engages in conflicts around the world. To close out, you asked what would a Biden administration do? Uh, I think you would see a more mature 
long-term approach to reforming all of these international institutions, of which ICC is simply just one. Jamil, what do you think? Is ICC materially different from, let's say, the World Health Organization, another multilateral entity we have some issues with? It seems to me we're better off being in the World Health Organization, reforming it from within, getting the things that we need out of it, making sure it advances our national interest, which is, you know, frankly, to have a multilateral health organization that really does serve as a sentinel for pandemics and help us deal with problems before they get here, uh, and also answers our humanitarian itch to do good things for our brothers and sisters around the world. ICC seems like a different thing to me, where the premise is just not quite something that Americans are comfortable with, which is that there's some sort of supranational body that can judge nations for their actions, in particular, their armed forces for things that, you know, those soldiers or Marines or airmen or what have you weren't really responsible for doing. But that, that just that the idea that something like the ICC is judging our fighting men and women is, is a little anathema to us. What do you think? So, look, I think there's a few things to say about that. I think you're right that they are fundamentally different. And look, we have reasonable criticisms of the World Health Organization. Their kowtowing to China um, and their behavior during this pandemic has been pathetic. Um, and the administration is right to call them out for that. But I share Andrew's concerns uh, with, you know, the Trump administration's ham-handed approach uh, to international organizations and our allies uh, alike. Uh, it has not been positive. It has not been the right approach. Um, and it has not been successful. That being said, they are 100% right on the ICC. And, you know, this has been a consistent policy of the Republican administrations going back to uh, George W. Bush. And actually, the Obama administration uh, never joined, never submitted the Rome statute for ratification to the Senate. Uh, so, you know, this, is, this has not been inconsistent. I mean, look, the ICC can't convict real war criminals. You know, the idea that's going to prosecute uh, American soldiers is ridiculous. Now, that being said, I want to be clear, the U.S. has supported international supranational tribunals in the past. We supported, my recollection is, the International Criminal Tribal for Rwanda, we support the Inter International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. So we're not averse to uh, supranational bodies. We just don't like them judging us, to be clear. And look, and that's how it is sometimes. But the fundamental problem with the Rome Statute is the way the system operates. It has a lot of the same flaws that the UN does. Again, the UN benefits from the fact that there are the Permanent Five on the Security Council, uh, which have vetoes, which we wield one of. Um, so I think there's important aspects of that. Um, but the UN has had its problems too. I mean, you look at the cast of characters, law-violating, rule-violating nations uh, that have run, for example, the UN human rights organizations. I mean, it's laughable on its face. And so, um, you know, these international organizations are not great, but I do think we have a role to play working with them, working through them, making them better, reforming them. And that sometimes that takes real pressure. Sometimes it takes threatening to pull out and cut your funding. And maybe that's what the administration is doing here with the WHO. It hasn't looked particularly reformative, but you know the administration's got to take a tough stand given, I think, how ridiculous the WHO's behavior has been in the middle of this pandemic, particularly when it comes to China. If I could just add one quick thing. I agree with Jamil. It's an institution that needs reform. You don't see a lot of discrepancy between Democrat and Republican administrations at the White House and their stance on uh, ICC in the last 20 plus years. I will say, you know, kind of in terms of lessons learned. I was told once as a young Marine lieutenant, when I kind of started moving into a first leadership role, hey, lieutenant, just remember, you can't fight every bum in the bar. What that meant was you can't go to fisticuffs over everything that's by principle wrong. You got to think these things through and weigh out where you're going to put uh, the bulk of your energy, right? And so you can come in with a heavy barrel or a heavy hand, and there are certainly issues where the United States needs to do that. Uh, and then there are other issues that you might think of as more kind of uh, minor grievances or annoyances that in a long-term 
relationship with the world in which the United States operates as certainly the leader, but one of many countries. You know, I think that the United States would be wise to take a long view and not just move toward the binary response of we're packing up our toys, we're going home every time there's something that we disagree with. And it doesn't mean we have to ratify treaties, but it does mean that the United States should hold up and seek to encourage all efforts that protect human rights, even if we find them imperfect. And even if at times we need to protect our own people. So I think that they're not mutually exclusive concepts, right? Disagreeing with how the ICC works and at the same time supporting it as an institution uh, and suggesting that the United States uh, supports the fundamental values that underlie uh, its creation and, and mission. You know, it's possible that bar fight metaphors are the best metaphors, even better than sports metaphors. I'm willing to stipulate that. All right, let's go to the last segment of the pod today, which is for each of us to articulate a story that we're following. It's not necessarily in the headlines. I'll go first. I've been tracking the dam project in Ethiopia, known as the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, or GERD, which is damming up the waters of the Blue Nile, which is the majority of water that flows into the Nile that goes into Egypt. It is a very controversial dam. They've been building it for about 10 years. They're starting to uh, to hold water back and, and build up the reservoir behind it. They're starting to turn on the, the energy resources. Egypt is very upset. It's possible Sudan is upset. Egypt is upset because it could impact the flow of water into that country. The water flows, of course, from Ethiopia to Sudan to Egypt into the Mediterranean. Uh, and if that water flow is too limited, it's very bad for Ethiopian agriculture and other things. The administration has offered to play a mediator role. And the president has appointed, of course, our Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, to be the negotiator for the U.S. Uh, and they keep announcing that they've gotten an agreement on the way forward, and then it falls apart a few days later. That's happened two or three times already just this year. Egypt has threatened to blow up the dam, which, of course, would launch uh, hostilities across the region, be terrible for U.S. interests. So I'm hopeful that the administration, the Trump administration, can take this seriously, and that Steve Mnuchin, who, while he's negotiating a trillion-dollar bailout with Congress, can also negotiate uh, a resolution of this very important Nile waters question in the Horn of Africa. All right, who wants to go next? Yeah, I'm happy to jump in, Les. So I'm following the ongoing dispute between the U.S. and China over cyber attacks and uh, the shutting of the consulates in Houston, the Chinese consulate in Houston, uh, and the U.S. consulate in Chengdu. Uh, obviously, uh, these are huge issues. We've known that the Chinese have been stealing our intellectual property for well over a decade. Uh, my current boss, uh, General Keith Alexander, uh, the former director of NSA, once called it the greatest transfer of wealth in modern human history. The FBI director recently repeated that. And it's true. Fundamentally, at the core of our economy is this intellectual property that China is stealing. I mean, we know they're doing it in a variety of ways. They're not just taking it out through cyber means. Uh, they're extorting U.S. companies when they go there. Uh, they're sending students here to take information and bring it back with them, researchers and the like. They're trying to use American, American academics to steal this data. Um, and they're running spy operations, as every country does, um, out of their embassies and consulates. And so sort of pushing back on this as an important part of this to just pat last week, the U.S. indicted two Chinese hackers, largely criminals, uh, but who are working with the Ministry of State Security in uh, China to steal a variety of intellectual property from multiple sectors in the United States, including uh, but not limited to a uh, COVID-19 research. And part of that has been this trading of the closing of consulates, an important issue that will play out in the trade conflict with China also. So one to keep an eye on. Lauren, do you want to go next? Sure thing. Yeah, I think both of those are incredibly fascinating. And I'm going to keep my focus at the moment a little closer to home here with the uh, ongoing legislative steps that both the 
NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, and the defense appropriations bills are taking, both on the House side and on the Senate side. Both have passed their policy bills, still have yet to address uh, fully appropriations. I'm curious to see the provision about renaming bases play out. I think it's one that's grabbing a lot of flare-up headlines here and there as the piece of legislation of the year. There's always something every year that, that flares up and grabs everybody's attention. It has bipartisan support on both sides, on the House and the Senate. And yet today, Chairman Inhofe, the SAS chairman on the Senate side, obviously came out and said, yeah, that's not going to make it into the final version. And I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to do, but I'm going to keep it out. So don't worry about it. And um, super curious to see see what magic pixie dusty has up his sleeve to make that happen. Andrew. Yeah, I'm actually interested in something a little, we'll say fully off the books. And recently, Mark Mitchell, who was the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations and Low Intensity Conflict, and also an, one of the National Security Council members uh, supporting the Obama administration, uh, wrote an article advocating for the elevation of the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations and Low-Intensity Conflict to be a full undersecretary on par with the service branch secretaries and renaming it Special Operations and Irregular Warfare. And the reason for that would be that some in the soft community are observing that Special Operations Forces and U.S. Covert Action Resources are being tasked with things, about 80% of which is beyond counterterrorism and traditional counterinsurgency, in order to offset Russian and Chinese expansionism uh, and changes in, in Chinese and Russian operational doctrine. It's a full spectrum of regular warfare to include things like the cyber domain, the space domain, places like the Arctic, and then, you know, mass disinformation campaigns that we're observing target uh, civilian populations, not just in places like Ukraine or against Uyghurs inside of Chinese borders, but also here in the United States and within the borders of our allies. So I think that there's a really interesting question because the National Defense Authorization Act of 2017, Section 922, it tasked the Office of Secretary of Defense with creating and implementing instructions to elevate that office to undersecretary of defense level and would probably increase the number of civilian appointees supporting special operations and what would be termed irregular warfare inside the Pentagon. And I just think it's going to be interesting to watch after the election, uh, regardless of who wins. Will we be seeing an American foreign policy that really embraces the need to counter how our adversary views the battle space. How is the Chinese Communist Party under Xi and how is Putin's former KGB-led crony government attacking the United States interests and those of our allies? Does special operations forces, the way they've been structured and used the past 20 years since 9-11, make sense? Does it need to be expanded? Uh, do we need increased mechanisms for interagency collaboration with the State Department, with the intelligence community, and with Homeland Security, among other actors? Uh, let's include Treasury for sanctions and financial and trade warfare. So, so I just think that this one's really below the radar for most national security professionals, but I think it's in increasingly important because we do know that the adversary gets a vote. And the question is, is the United States prepared at the OSD level or even at the whole of government level to really counter how our adversaries are coming after us in a great power competition. Okay, that's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Nikki Keddington for research assistance, and our own Grant Haver for his terrific work as our producer and editor. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.